it is said that a draft horse here featured on the screen can pull up to 8,000 pounds by itself. However, if you put two of these horses together, they can not only pull 16,000 pounds as we might imagine, but 24,000 pounds. They're able to carry 8,000 additional pounds simply by working together. And we kind of wonder, how, how exactly does this work? You know, like when they combine, do they get like super horse strength when they're next to each other or something like that? Do they like genetically turn into some monster or something like that? Uh, not, not exactly. But when they're placed next to each other, they are psychologically strengthened by the presence of another partner working collectively with them toward the same mission and purpose. And as a result of having this partnership together with their eyes set collectively on the object that they are pursuing, they can carry way more weight together than when they are separated. However, the opposite is true as well. If these horses do not get along and they actually start pulling off to the left or to the right or a different direction altogether, they can actually do far, far less than when they're together. So it is important then that these horses learn to pull in the same direction, to have their eyes set on the goal and to pull one as a unit together. If they do, they can pull so much more. But if they don't, they risk accomplishing far less. And the same is true for our church even here this morning. God in his infinite wisdom has united us together in Christ. And it's in Jesus that we find identity, union, and purpose. And by focusing on that purpose, we together as the body of Christ can pull so much more weight together. We can make so much more of Jesus together than when we're apart. But just as we see these horses here accomplishing nothing as they pull against each other, so the same can be true for us. If we are not unified together in mission and purpose and mind of making much of Jesus, then the glory of God is not maximized. And the glory of God can be diminished all together. So it is important then as the body of Christ, in our gospel relationships to one another, to work together in unity and love. But how do we know if we are truly working together as we should, instead of against each other? How do we know if we're working in tandem with other believers towards the glory of God in the church? As we come back to Philippians 4 for our final message in this book, we find then at least five characteristics from Paul's own gospel-centered partnership to the Philippians. And it's in these characteristics of his own relationship to them that we can evaluate our own partnerships and our own relationships to each other in this assembly. And by doing this, we can see if we ourselves are pulling in the right direction. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Philippians 4, 10 through 23 as we examine this passage here together. How do we know if we're pulling in the same direction? First, if there is genuine care for one another. 
in writing to the Philippians, Paul again speaks here in verse 10 of the great joy that he has in the Lord. We've seen this just over and over and over and over again. And the reason here? Because the Philippians have renewed their care for Paul once more. And speaking of this renewed care, Paul is speaking of their financial gift that was given to him by Epaphroditus. For a time, the Philippians were not able to care for Paul because Paul was moved from prison to prison to prison. And so there may have been a period of time where where they weren't able to care for Paul simply because they didn't know where he was or because he was just far, far removed from them. He was far away. However, once opportunity arose, they immediately began to care for him once more. And so this is what Paul confirms for us. He says, it's not as if you weren't concerned about me. You were concerned about me, but you just lacked the opportunity to show it. And what we find here then is that there is a deep, genuine care between Paul and his gospel-centered partnership with the Philippians. Not just in the entirety of the letter, but again here. They cared for Paul every chance they could. And so just as this church sought to genuinely care for Paul, so the same ought to be true for us in our relationships to one another. We strive to care for one another as God has cared for us all. And in case we forget, how is it that God cared for us? How is it that he loved us? By sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, each and every one of them. And so we work together to pull in this direction by expressing what God has done for us in our care for each other. We work to demonstrate God's love and care to each and every one here this morning, including our missionaries and those that we partner with in ministries. We want to say loudly that the gospel matters and it changes us. So some of the ways we try to do this as a church, of course, is by financially giving and supporting ministries and missionaries that we've partnered with in the gospel. But then we also do this by regularly praying for these gospel-centered partnerships regularly. If you didn't notice, Aaron prayed quite a bit for many of our people in this assembly. And that's part of how we care intentionally. We pray, not just on Sundays, but also during our quarterly all-church prayer gatherings. We try to regularly check in with our partners in the gospel and you. And then we try as a church to figure out how can we encourage one another in the faith? How can we love one another better? And so we not only do this corporately, but then we also do this individually as well. As I was contemplating on how we care for one another in the church, my heart was just overflowing with joy and gladness as I reflected on the many ways you are already doing this in our assembly. Many of you have given much time and effort towards the parsonage these past few months. And in doing this, you expressed love and care for our family who is now living there. You sought to provide for them in a tangible, meaningful way as you provided them with material possessions and food. 
much like the Philippians did with Paul. Others of you have recently made meals for those in our assembly who are very sick. And they're doing that yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And in this act of love, you again are expressing care and concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Still other of you are involved in caring for our church by cleaning it up on a regular basis each and every week. And in doing Panera Bread by packaging it up and then giving it away to all of us for free each and every Sunday. And then there are those of you who are praying for our service and ministries every Sunday morning here before the service. And then there are, of course, still those who selflessly serve each and every Sunday to ensure that our services run smoothly for the sake of the gospel. So this includes our child care workers who are working feverishly around the clock. This includes our Bible class teachers, our greeters, our ushers, our sound and tech people, our musicians and our deacons. And the list just goes on and on and on. And I'm overjoyed just to see how many different ways this church is seeking to care for one another genuinely as we are impacted by the gospel. Because by doing this, we pull then in the direction of making the gospel known, not just in word, but in deed. So I speak these words not to suggest that we've arrived, okay? We've, we've made it. But I'm speaking these words to encourage all of us to press on in this direction. Keep growing in your love and care for one another as you reflect on God's infinite love and care for you in Christ. So Paul is incredibly joyful that the Philippians have supported him. He's joyful not only because they've given him money and financial aid, but because in giving to Paul, they really reflect their love and care for him, and most importantly, the advance of the gospel. This is what Paul is joyful about. So Paul, desiring them to rightly understand the cause of his joy here, then takes verses 11 through 13 to clarify that this joy and contentment is not found in their gift to him. It's not found in the money that they handed to him. Instead, Paul wants them to know that I don't say this out of need. Okay? I don't say this as if I'm finding my joy and my contentment in your money. Why? For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. It's here then that we learn that we are pulling in the right direction if our contentment is based in Christ Jesus. Paul begins to clarify where his contentment comes from. We first find that true contentment is not found in circumstances or things. Let me say that one more time. Our contentment is not found in circumstances or things. Let that truth sink in and saturate your mind in that truth. Because our culture tells us the exact same message from the morning we wake up, the morning to the night when we go to sleep. Our world tells us that there are like 
a million things in this world that we need to be happy and content. Things like money, fame, popularity, being well-liked, comfort, physical security, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, entertainment. And the list just goes on and on and on. You need this to be happy. The world tries to get us to buy into the reality that we just need more and more and more to be content. And yet Paul says here, that's just straight up not true. And my life proves it, says Paul. Paul elaborates here. He expresses the reality that he has had little and he's had much. He's been hungry and he's been well fed. He's been in need and he's had abundance. Yet no matter how comfortable Paul's situation was or how awful, including the stonings, the beatings, the shipwrecks that Paul endured, he says emphatically that is inconsequential to the joy and contentment that he has. So if Paul's contentment and joy is not dependent on his circumstances, nor is it dependent on things, what is it dependent on? We find that Paul's contentment is based on something that he's learned. This contentment I have, says Paul, it's something I've learned over time. I've come to learn the secret of contentment, Paul says. This learning of contentment is in many ways connected to what we already covered just last week. He's learned contentment by learning to pray in all things when anxiety hits him. He's learned contentment by dwelling on all that is helpful, holy, and right. He's learned contentment by heeding the word of God in all areas of life. And now Paul takes all that he's learned and he basically summarizes it in just one sentence, which is the goal of all of this learning. What is the secret to contentment in anything? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The contentment Paul has is wrapped up in Christ who empowers Paul to this end. And so Paul states this truth, which we know so well, and as he states it, he is thinking of two main ideas. First, he can do all things in the sense of having contentment in all things because of Jesus. Paul can have contentment in stonings and beatings and shipwrecks and even in the dirty prison cell that he now writes this letter because Jesus is with Paul. Jesus' presence with Paul is so precious and so sweet that it brings him true contentment and peace no matter what is taking place around him. Paul has Jesus and that's enough. But second, Paul can also do all things in the sense of accomplishing God's mission. Even if the money never arrived from Epaphroditus, Paul wants the Philippians to know that it's not as if God's mission would have been thwarted. Because God is bigger than all of that. Paul could have accomplished God's mission despite these drawbacks because God was empowering him. It is God who works in and through Paul. And so it is this truth that brings so much contentment and peace 
to Paul. Because God's success, God's glory, is not ultimately dependent on us, but God who works through us to accomplish all things that he desires. So we can rest in his empowering strength, even as Paul does. So at this point, I want to address what I'm sure are like the million ways this verse has been ripped out of context and misapplied across the board. Uh, to perhaps oversimplify this verse and how it's been ripped out of context, uh, many people take this verse to mean, I can do whatever I set my mind on. You know, I mean, that's basically how the majority of people take that. Whether it's from, you know, losing five pounds in a given week or month, to winning a Super Bowl or championship, to becoming, you know, the next president of the United States, to entering a prestigious college or university, uh, to making a million dollars, to whatever else you might imagine. And let me just say bluntly, if you're taking this verse to mean that you can do whatever you set your mind on, you're missing the point. You're missing a crucial element, and that is God himself. God is the one who strengthens you to accomplish his purposes. He strengthens you to accomplish what he wants, not what you want, what he wants. And in this particular context, that has to do with contentment in Jesus and accomplishing God's divine purposes. So if we are to rightly apply this verse then, we can have contentment in all things because we have Jesus with us. He is our precious treasure and reward, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. We can do all things that God wants because our God is so big and so great that his mission will be accomplished despite our inadequacies. And so it is this amazing, profound truth that enables God's people to step out in faith for his glory. And so in the words of William Carey, expect great things from God, and so attempt great things for God. For it is God who works in and through us to accomplish his plans. So we pull then in the right direction as we collectively learn to rely on Christ day by day. And so learn each and every day what it means to find contentment and peace in Jesus who is our treasure and our reward. Now in saying that Paul's joy and Paul's contentment comes from Christ, Paul wants the Philippians to understand that he is not like ungrateful for their gift or something, right? He's not trying to say, hey, I got Christ. I didn't really need your gift, so thanks for nothing. That's not what he's saying here. He just wants them to know, find your contentment in Jesus. And so I am very appreciative of this gift to me. It shows me that you are deeply committed. However, our translation here in verse 14, in my opinion, doesn't do the best job of communicating that. It makes it seem as if, you know, Paul is half-heartedly thankful for their gift and partnership. But instead, they are deeply committed to Paul. And the verse here should be translated, you did 
a beautiful thing by partnering with me in the gospel. You did a beautiful and wonderful thing. And so it's here that we see then that they are committed to Paul, deeply committed. And it's a beautiful thing. So as Paul reflects upon their beautiful commitment to him, he remembers all the times that they suffered with Paul in his hardships. They had opportunity after opportunity to cut and run when Paul entered trouble. But the Philippians stayed the course with Paul. When Paul was getting dragged off from prison to prison, they didn't abandon him, but they willingly endured the hardship wherever they could. They sacrificed in any way to ensure that Paul was cared for. And more than this, Paul goes on to tell us how they were also one of the first partners with him in the gospel. When no other church was willing to partner with him, they were. And on top of this, they went above and beyond their call of duty in seeing that Paul was well provided for during his short time at Thessalonica. So in reminding them of their past commitment to himself, Paul speaks highly of what they did for him. They were a church who evidenced by their actions a deep commitment, not only to Paul, but to the spreading of the gospel. And so just as Paul praises this church for their deep commitment to him, so we, like the Philippians, should strive toward the same in our own gospel partnerships to one another. We should give generously as God has given to us, and we should be willing to take on hardships and inconveniences to those who are especially pursuing gospel endeavors. And we do this because if the gospel is ultimately the most central thing about us, we will gladly share the burdens of those who are seeking the same end. And so pull with them to that end. So being committed to gospel partnerships may look different at times. Sometimes it may look like committing financial aid, as it did between Paul and the Philippians. But on the other hand, it could look like a commitment to pray for one another and a commitment to help one another when we hit troubled waters. And there are a dozen different ways this could be fleshed out even in our own assembly. But in all of this, there should be a willingness to endure with one another when things get rough. If we cut and run whenever there is a relational bump or a rough spot, then we fail in many ways to reflect God's undying commitment to us. So we strive then, as a church, to pull together by being committed to one another and ultimately to the gospel. Paul speaks of all the different ways the Philippians showed commitment to himself. He, again, understood that he could be misunderstood. The Philippians could wrongly read between the lines that Paul was reminding them of all the times they gave him money and gifts, and so they, he wants more gifts. You know, hey, remember that time you gave me money? Yeah, go ahead and give me some more. That's not what he's doing. And so he reminds them, I'm only reminding you of all the past good things you have done because I'm urging you to really invest in eternity. All these things that you've done, Philippians, you've done this, and now you have invested in eternity. 
And so by reminding of him of all these things, he's having him have a heavenly perspective. What you are doing is pursuing the only credit that matters in life. You are seeking the credit that is found in God alone. A credit that will last for all eternity. So like a financial advisor, Paul lets them know that their earthly investment, all that they've done for him, is not in vain as it serves to promote that which will last, really, for all eternity. And with Paul's encouragement to the Philippians, we ourselves are reminded how not to waste our life or to throw it away. We are reminded how to best invest our life in the way that God intends. If we want to make our lives count for something, that we do so by investing it in such a way that the gospel is furthered and the God's glory here magnified upon earth. And it will be in this way that we really avoid wasting our lives and instead make it count for all eternity. So while Paul is incredibly grateful for this generous gift given to him by the Philippians, what he is more grateful for is the fact that they are doing what matters most in life. They are investing in eternity. They are sacrificing for that which matters most in the eyes of God. And in the eyes of God, this is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So this is what excites Paul most. And it is this same truth that excites your pastors when we see you give in numerous ways to see the gospel advance. So everything I said before about how this church is serving and giving, know that your labors are not in vain, even if you can't see results right here. But it will last for all eternity if it's being done for God and the gospel. So we give then, ourselves to what matters most today. And we pull in the direction of eternity. And if you ever have doubt about whether or not you can afford to give to God or to the gospel, let the promise that Paul speaks here urge you forward. For in giving for the sake of the gospel and God's glory, he says God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And so as they give generously and, and, and thankfully toward the cause of the gospel, Paul reminds them that God will certainly repay the Philippians and he will take care of their every need. This was incredibly important for them because the church in Philippi was often in poverty. Many of them had barely enough to survive on. And 2 Corinthians 8.2 seems to indicate this. But the promise that Paul gives to them is that God who sees their giving towards one another will reward them richly. He will meet all of their needs, each and every one of them. And he will do this because our God is a loving and good Father. As one pastor puts it, you might imagine a scenario where a father, son, and daughter are on a boat going out to sea. And as they go out to sea, the temperature drops, and so they're all really cold out there. And the son 
seeing that his sister is cold and forgot her jacket, takes off his coat and puts it on his sister to take care of her. The father witnesses all of this while driving the boat. And what will that father do once he sees this act of love towards his daughter? He's going to take off his coat. He's going to give it to his son. He's going to care for that son who cared for his daughter. And so our God is our father who sees all. He sees the way that we care and love for one another and the ways that we give to each other. And this promise is for us, that when we give for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, he will take care of us. He will provide richly and beyond what we could ever possibly imagine or think. So if we're ever tempted to doubt if this is the case, if we are ever tempted to doubt God's goodness to us and his provisions, we must remember ultimately that God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? So these words of promise give us strong encouragement to give toward that which matters most. Because God himself will supply our needs. Not what we want, but what we truly need. And so in our giving to one another, God is glorified. And so Paul erupts into immense praise to God at this truth. To our God and Father be glory ever and ever. Amen. When the Father sees his people giving to one another, he is glorified and he will bless. So as Paul concludes this letter, he does so by greeting them once more in Christ Jesus. And by doing this, he again reminds them that their collective identity is to be found in Jesus. So it is in Jesus that unites all of them together in community. And as we read these closing words, we find that even Caesar's own household is a part now of this community. There is a diverse people who once had nothing in common with each other, now suddenly bonded together with deep affection and love in community. And so we should hope for the same in our church as the gospel is spread vibrantly around us. The gospel is central in our church, and there should lead then to some level of diversity, even as it did for them. So this will include people of different ranges of occupations, interests, backgrounds, opinions, and social statuses. And yet in all of this, in all of our community, there will be unity around that which is central above all, Jesus Christ. But in order for us to attain this end, which we strive for, we need what Paul concludes for in this benediction. We need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with our spirit. For it is the grace of God that we must depend upon if we are to pull in the same direction. It is the grace of God that we need to properly care for one another as we should. It's the grace of God that helps us to be content in Christ and committed to one another. And it is the grace of God that helps us keep our eyes fixed on that which matters most. It's the grace of God that we need 
we are to be a church truly centered on the gospel for eternity to come. So may we then be a people that are humbly dependent on the grace of God as we pull toward this end. So let's go to the Lord in prayer now, asking that he would work to this end. Father, we come before you thankful for Christ. And our desire is to make much of him and to glorify his name. Help us, Lord, to pull in that direction. Help us to make much of Christ together. And so magnify his name to all around us. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace in this matter. Help us, for we are a frail and weak people. We often mess up. We often sin. But your grace, Lord, is sufficient for us. For your power is made perfect in weakness. So we ask that you would lavish your immense rich grace upon us and that we would truly make much of Christ together. And we pray this in his name. Amen.